I think that's called vacation anytime you want. Mm. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're trying to be very serious about this and I'm making jokes all over it. I apologize. I can see the annoyance on your face. I know. Welcome to Cancer for Breakfast with Amy and Steph. I'm Amy. And I'm Steph. try to make cancer for breakfast safe and comfortable for everyone, it may not be suitable for all audiences and is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're not doctors. We didn't even go to podcasting school. (laughs) Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Amy. Hi, it's Cancer for Breakfast. Welcome, listeners. We have so much to talk about today. Yeah, hey, you some guys. crazy stuff happening. Yeah, it's it's a big, exciting time. It is for you, for me, mostly for you, though. <laughs> mostly for me. I will. I will cop to that. I mean, let's just get right in there. Let's do so. The last time you heard from us, Steph was preparing for her scan. Or did you just have... No, you just had your scan. Yeah, I think so. Did we talk about what happened at your scan? I don't think that we did, but that's okay. It's all water under the bridge. It's water under the bridge. We've moved on. Someday I'll talk about it, but not today. Surprise, surprise. It was a weird experience, believe it or not. I'm just going to keep that little nugget in my pocket for now, but... Okay. Had a scan. And then something thrilling happened, which was that you, me, were here, was there in Seattle. Mm-hmm. You, Amy, mm-hmm. was and you came with me to my appointment. Oh yes. So um, we mentioned, I believe, in a previous episode that to celebrate Steph's um, 39th birthday, we had a sweet. <laughs> At the professional women's soccer game, the OL Reign, on the breast cancer awareness game. Yeah. And it was really fun. So I came up for that. And then the next day was Steph's appointment to get her results and to see her wonderful oncologist, Rach, who I've been hearing about for three years. Yeah. And so I got to go with her and see Fred Hutch and see Rach and, you know, check out the cafeteria and like... See what their elevators feel like to ride in, which honestly, your elevators take a long time, stuff to get you. Oh, no. Have you noticed that? I haven't. I mean, maybe it was a fluke. You know what? I actually have noticed that. <gasps> Our elevators do take a long time to get there. Mm-hmm. There are frequently lots of people waiting. I wonder, hey, Fred Hutch, are you listening? I waited for so long on my way down that I thought, I wish I was making a video of this experience yeah, to put in like to show a support ticket like I'm not joking yeah this is really how long this is taking so I could text it to you and, <laughs> and say yeah like who who can you show this, this to? is an outrage yeah I like started a timer or something. okay anyway who cares elevators so you came to my appointment and you met Rachel who is just the absolute best dream come true kind of oncologist she's so great. hi Rach um And we talked about all kinds of things like my scan results. I do have a spot of some new avidity in my armpit. It's a lymph node. And like what's so funny about it is it like could be Mm -hmm. a cold. It could be cancer. It could be COVID. It could be who fucking knows. But I guess we're doing like a wait and see thing about that. She did not seem super worried at all about that. She did not. But I have kind of been sick. I've had this like cold-ish thing for like two weeks at this point. I don't know. It's the beginning of the school year. Mm So it was expected. But anyway, so like no big on that front. But then (laughs) Rachel was like, I heard on the podcast that we sent you to collections. Like, why haven't we talked about that before? Yeah. For listeners who didn't hear the last episode, we did mention that that had happened. And it actually caused you to postpone even getting your scan by an extra month because you were yeah. 
in a shame spiral about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's so, it was very kind and sweet of her, of Rachel to say like, why haven't we talked about this before? Because yes, clearly financial toxicity is a huge problem for cancer people. And yes, it does affect your care. Yes. It does affect your treatment. Mm -hmm. Yes. It does affect timelines, et cetera, et cetera. I am living proof of that. Even though I am somebody who is like fully informed and feels like I should be not in a shame spiral about it because like I don't give a fuck about my credit score like it's all a scam right capitalism is um the work of the devil but uh still I wasn't gonna be like hey guess what I can't pay my bills I'm not paying for this appointment right now what do you think of that (laughs) you know right that seems just obviously that's not how I was gonna say it but there's still a lot of shame involved so yeah but it also feels like well what's she supposed to do exactly like if you're like oh I'm not gonna pay my water bill because I need to pay you guys so I don't get sent to collections oh but I did get sent to collections yeah. And I didn't pay my water bill because I was, you know, like, I mean, that's just an example. I don't know if that's true, but it happens. It does. And then like, what do you expect your doctor to do about it? Except yeah. to be like, oh, that sucks. So yeah. Anyway, she was really cool about it and was like, why haven't we talked about this before? And she was actually um, one of the people at Fred Hutch that got to meet Dr. Jill Biden, which is fucking rad. So cool. Um, and she was like, yeah, I was like texting with um, somebody else that got to meet her. And I was like, we sent my patient to collections. Like, what's up with that? So we chatted about it for a minute and then we like moved on <laughs> to other topics. So anyway, I don't think I went like super, super in depth about the collections sitch, but like she was very appalled and shocked and she was saying things like well maybe I can get in there and see if they can at least pull it so it doesn't go to your credit and you were like no it's it's already there like I've talked to them and it's already hit it you know yeah and because yes hot tip for anybody that gets sent to collections I think we said this before oftentimes it's just the same place like the hospital they say they've sent you to collections but it's like their own financial department so yes sometimes you can be like hey can I set up a payment plan or whatever Mm -hmm. and they'll be like okay just kidding never mind we won't send you to collections yeah but we talked to them and they were like sorry too late that ship has sailed yeah you'll never buy a house your children <laughs> will never go to college. Just kidding. No. Um, but so I had made peace with the fact that like I was just going to be in collections for this like $6,000 or whatever. And then I that day mm-hmm. was going to owe them $2,200 more. And it just creates this mountain of debt. And it's demoralizing. Yes. But at mm-hmm. some point, you just kind of have to be like, what, what else am I going to do? Like, I'm just going to keep riding this train until they cut me off. But you were making payments too, like... Yes, absolutely. So it's just like, who can make that many payments and who can have just like every few months on top of your co-pays and on top of your just appointment co-pays and your prescription yeah. co-pays and everything. Yeah. And like having to live, you know, like we've got three kids and... Yes. Yes. So anyway, Rachel was appropriately displeased at the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, She had some great ideas that I felt like we had already tried. Um, I had applied for charity care, for example. If you guys have not applied for charity care at your hospital, please do it. Like, even if you think you won't qualify, like we didn't qualify in the beginning, we were denied. So just give it a shot. Charity care covers anything that your insurance doesn't cover up to like a certain percent. Anyway, so moving on, like we, we... Finished the appointment with Rachel. You and I had some great lunch. I had some lovely coconut lemongrass tofu and rice at the cafeteria. I had a vegetarian Caesar salad. And then I went to my Zometa injection or infusion and you hung out for a bit until you had to catch the bus. And wait for the elevator for so long. (laughs) I almost missed the bus. Um, And then, you know, I drove home, whatever. So... We had a regular payment that went through to Fred Hutch, like our regular $274 a month or whatever went through. And then we got this like notification and my husband is like, all of a sudden we have a zero balance. 
Like, there's nothing in collections. There's nothing else owed. It's just this one $274 payment that we just made because it was automatically, you know, it, it was, mm-hmm. we had auto pay. Nothing else is there. And we've been approved for charity care at 100%. Like, what? I don't know what shenanigans happened. If like what Rachel did, who she talked to, I, it's one of those situations where I don't want to like look at it too closely or like call attention to it just in case it was a mistake. But <laughs> As she says into a microphone, I know, it's just like two millions of people don't touch listen it. to this. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like, like life changing does not begin to describe this situation in which we suddenly don't have to pay hundreds of dollars every month. Um, and then look at like this amount of money that we owe that we would never be able to pay. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, we do have to reapply every year for charity care. Um, but it's just such a testament to the fact that some doctors actually do give a shit. You know, it's like we, I feel like in Facebook groups and like support groups and stuff, we always hear people saying like, well, my oncologist doesn't really care. Like they don't understand what we're really going through or Mm -hmm. like they're only in it for the money or all of these things. Like even to the absolute most absurd, like they already have the cure for cancer and it's all just like a money grubbing scam. But that's not true. And my oncologist is living proof of the fact that some oncologists actually see the whole picture. They Mm -hmm. have been able to evolve with the times and see that cancer isn't just a thing that you cure as a doctor. And then like your patients are out of sight, out of mind. It's now this like lifelong situation where your people are staying alive for longer. And so these issues are compacted year by year when you're surviving and surviving and surviving. Um, so I don't know. I'm just super grateful. I'm grateful that charity care exists in the first place. I'm so grateful to my oncologist. I'm grateful that she and the other people at Fred Hutch talked to Dr. Jill Biden about financial toxicity in cancer because yes, we all want the cancer moonshot or whatever to like cure cancer, <laughs> but don't laugh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just like every time I see it's like Joe Biden be like, we're going to cure cancer. It's like, okay, honey, just let him do it. Let him cure it. Oh, Come on. That's jaded. Have a worther. 39 year old. <laughs> um, But you know, it's like, okay, cancer is like 80 bajillion different things. You're not going to cure cancer. But what you can do is like little by little, take some of the stress out of the situation while you do work on individually curing (laughs) all the bajillion different cancers. Um, So yeah, anyway, very cool. Rachel, I love you. You're the best. Yeah, I said, it's so clear that Rachel has your back in more ways than we even knew, because she so has your back for your medical care and cares about you as a person. She cares about your family and she cares about your health clearly, but it was so nice to see her really just step up. Like she didn't have to get so involved with the outcome of it. She could have just said, Hey, is there any way you could this or that, or, you know, or even just approve you for charity care at a smaller percentage, yeah. but hundred percent. Yeah. That is absolutely life-changing. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's all very cool. And I just, I want to talk about this just for one hot second before I think I'm going to devote my whole rats to it. Listeners might know that I attended as a patient advocate, the invasive lobular carcinoma um, symposium in Pittsburgh. And that also was such a testament to the buy-in that researchers and clinicians and physicians have in patient care and including patients in the landscape of cancer treatment and research and drug development and all of this stuff. Like, I felt so included at that symposium as a patient. I felt like my intellect was respected. I felt like my experience was respected and listened to. And I don't know, I just, I really want 
anybody who has the opportunity to attend one of these symposia, I want to be really specific and say one of the like professional ones, um, because mm-hmm. yeah, it can be super fun to go to the like cancer retreats and, um, like the cancer patient specific conventions and stuff where you're like there for community with your peers. But mm-hmm. this was like very much a professional situation where they were presenting, um, research and data and stuff. So, um, if you do have the opportunity to attend one of these for your particular type of cancer, I highly, highly recommend that you do it. And there are often travel scholarships available for patients. I got one. Um, and so it's not always as inaccessible as it might seem on the surface, but please try to attend one of these because these researchers and doctors really want to hear the patient experience. They want to include you. And it's also just really amazing and bolstering to see what's happening around your cancer. Like, I was a little bit worried that it would be kind of a downer and I would feel a lot of anxiety seeing like um, progression-free survival stats and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it was exactly the opposite. It was like watching all of these incredibly brilliant people working their asses off to try to find any kind of data that will propel lobular cancer treatment forward. It was so cool. So anyway. That was an FYI little addendum to the like Rachel rules, obviously, but also like so many oncologists rule, like so many of them are so devoted to patient care and patient advocacy. So, you know, like anytime you get down on your oncologist or you think they kind of suck, like for sure, there's a better one out there. Like if you think your oncologist doesn't give a shit about you, I promise you that there are 10 more who do. And I mean, that is what, what we deserve. Depends on where you live. Depends on if and what you have access to. <laughs> depends on if you're cool or not. Maybe they don't care about you. <laughs> well, I mean, gosh, I'm just thinking of some poor person listening who's like, I live in this small town and we have one car and I, you know. Yeah. So yeah. But I think get off that high horse, Stephanie. But I think Stephanie, <laughs> no debt, laziness suddenly <laughs> thinks anybody can do whatever they want. No, but I mean, I think what is important to remember is that it's not just these like fucking hot shot world class physicians from Belgium or whatever that care. I saw people from all over the world, all over the country Mm -hmm. from smaller hospitals that were there. And so I think like that's important too, to, to know that it doesn't have to be somebody who everyone recognizes and recommends. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of doctors out there who understand these new ways of providing cancer care that include the full spectrum of health and happiness, you know, like your oncologist should care about your sexual health. Your oncologist should care about financial toxicity Mm -hmm. and all of that. So I don't know, they exist. And if that means you have to get a second opinion via Zoom or something, that also is available. Mm -hmm. All right. I'll just fold up my little soapbox for now, but I'm setting it to the side because I'm going to in case you need it get back up on it (laughs) (laughs) so you're going to do a rats on something going on that you found out about at the symposium I think actually my rats is going to be basically all about the symposium because there was so much science there was so much development there was so much advances I love it okay well I can't wait to get there and uh I guess it means it's time for letters. Yeah. Do you have one? I got a letter. All right. It says, I want to start out by saying that this letter will be a bit winded. It might not actually be because I'm actually going to only read half of it because it's split (laughs) into two topics. Um, Perfect. But you can obviously choose to read bits and pieces of it. That's what I just said. I want to give Steph a shout out for introducing me on the down low to this podcast in another cancer group that we were both a part of. Shout out to Cancerinos. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I immediately started listening because who wouldn't listen to what seemed to be a lighthearted and even somewhat funny cancer podcast? It seems to be exactly what I needed. And Steph was right. I was immediately hooked after listening to episode one. Is that what you told her, Stephanie? <laughs> you will um, immediately be hooked. <laughs> immediately be hooked. No, I didn't. I you feel just said you could listen. Okay. Really self-conscious. About- no, that, I think she's saying you were right that she could get something out of it. Okay. I'm just teasing you, Stephanie. Good. Let me read my letter. Let I, me read my letter. I Quit interrupting me. Publicize the podcast in my personal Facebook groups very often. She said it was on the down low. It was on the down low. Okay. 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 I immediately related to both of you, even though I was dealing with rectal cancer. You two really have a way of connecting with your audience and making everyone feel both heard and included at the same time. Oh, to top it off, you always give at least one reason to laugh in every episode. I also love the rats portion. Yeah, me too. My one point one point five year old, my one and a half year old daughter dances to the whole theme song. Aw, she shouldn't yeah. be listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> she doesn't get it. It's fine. But no judgment. Okay. Um, this podcast was the bright light that I needed when I felt my whole world was closing in and no one really understood what I was going through. I can't say enough good okay. We don't pay enough attention to these before we start reading them. And by we, I mean me, because I would never just go on and on. Amy. I would have cut it in half, but if she wants me to say it, I'll say it. Okay. (laughs) So this podcast was the bright light that I needed when I felt like my whole world was closing in and no one really understood what I was going through. I can't say enough good things about the work you both are doing and recommend it as often as I can to people. That is so nice. That's not the letter though. That's, That's really nice. Thank you. That really m- means a lot. It does. It is so nice. It's Legit. so lovely to read. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay. And then she does say, outside of gushing about you and how great you both are, I do have some some thoughts and opinions to share about topics that you've asked for letters on. So I'm going to read what she says about fertility and then I'll read the other topics. Another episode The first one is cancer and fertility. Um, one of you mentioned, Steph, I think, that there are so many cancers that are tied to fertility that you wouldn't even think of. Turns out rectal cancer is one of those. My fertility story starts back about four years ago. My husband and I had been trying to have our second child for about five years. We went through all of the steps before IVF, fertility drugs, ultrasounds, fertility trackers, procedures to clear my tubes, etc. They were all to no avail. Then in January of 2020, I had my second miscarriage. This time they had to surgically remove the baby in my tube due to it being an ectopic pregnancy. At this point, my OB and the fertility specialist basically looked at me and said, look, you're at an advanced age and you're one tube down and you just had another miscarriage. This thing isn't happening without IVF. So we made the plans for IVF at the beginning of 2020. Then COVID hit. We weren't allowed to start IVF because it was an elective procedure and not allowed during COVID times. So I went three more months waiting to see if I would get my period. And then I'd cry because I did. And then I'd cry again when the fertility clinic told me they were unable to see me. Then in May of 2020, I took a pregnancy test on a whim and it was positive. I was extremely excited and this was truly a miracle. It wasn't until about seven months pregnant with Chloe that I realized just how much of a miracle she really was. My rectal cancer symptoms continued to worsen while I was pregnant. I eventually advocated for myself until I was given a referral to a GI specialist. We went through all of the less serious testing for what could be causing these symptoms. They all came back negative. The only thing left was a dreaded colonoscopy. I was terrified. I was 38 and pregnant and emotional. Luckily, they couldn't do the procedure until after birth. So there I was walking into a GI clinic all alone because of COVID, leaving my husband and six-week-old baby in the car. I woke up to my husband in the room and the doctor saying, we found a mass. My world stopped. Flash forward to weeks later when I was meeting with my radiation oncologist who would tell me that the radiation would cause me to go through menopause. 
meaning no more babies. Initially, I was fine with it because all we ever wanted was two babies. But somehow, when it was no longer my choice and it was cancer's choice, a small part of me wanted to have three more babies. Yeah. (laughs) I have eventually come to terms in my own head that I can't have babies. But I have two amazing children and currently am NED. That's more than enough to make me smile. But I can't help but tear up a little bit when somebody asks me, do you think you'll ever have another one? Or I bet Chloe can't wait to have a younger sibling. I also get annoyed as fuck. See, this is why your daughter shouldn't be listening to this podcast. Oh, stop it. Don't you say one more word about her miracle baby. Um, You know what, though? She actually said she didn't say as fuck. She said AF, but I, I took the liberty. So... <laughs> so many layers. Okay, I get annoyed AF when I'm asked to take a pregnancy test for various reasons. Tell them no. Tell them you won't freaking do it. I tell them that. I think it's yeah. so annoying. It's like another slap in the face about how cancer took yet another thing away from me. <sighs> and so yeah, so she does write about a few other topics that I will save for another episode. Um, but thank you so much, Jamie. So yeah, she says, thank you for taking the time to read. You two are nothing short of amazing. Please don't Aww. ever stop making episodes. Um, Jamie, if you like us so much, why don't you leave us a review? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, have have you done that? <laughs> I'm gonna have to go look through them. I'm gonna check the names, you know. Jamie, we love you. Thank you so much. You know, uh, Amy's right though on the um pregnancy test thing. Just tell them to fuck off. Just tell yeah. them. And then they'll be like, "Uh, are you sure? Because I might have to have you sign something that says you're not." And then you can just say, "Okay, okay, thanks." thanks. Like, no problem. Thank yeah, you. I'd rather move my hand over a clipboard, even though I shouldn't have to, than like go into a weird chemical Lysol smelling bathroom and pee in a cup and leave it in a weird drawer. Yep. It's fascinating to me how I guess we put our own cancer experiences um, against other people's cancer experiences because like having to go through cancer, the cancer diagnostic process while you're heavily pregnant to me sounds like an absolute nightmare compared to what I went through. Mm. <laughs> um, and then, you know, finding out that you have cancer when you have a young baby, just, you know, like you did, Amy, all of that to me sounds so fucking nightmarish mm. that it like is blood curdling to me. Um, and I also really identify with the idea that once you are told you can't have any more children, mm-hmm. you suddenly want more children. <laughs> um, yeah. But also so when hard. people are like, you should have more kids, you should have more kids. You're like, I don't, you know, like if, you if don't it's know the me. opposite way, you're like, <laughs> just because yeah. I have one doesn't mean I have to, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. When she said that her baby was six weeks old, it made me think about how, um, like I like to bring up every episode when I found my lump and went to the doctor, my daughter was six weeks old. And that's yeah. when my doctor said, Oh no, that's just a breastfeeding lump. Um, But then I think of what my experience would have been like if that was my diagnosis date instead of when she was, I think, 13 months old. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, so many things could have been very different, but still at the same time, like being that fresh into, you know, caring for a new life is already the most intense time of your life so geez it's a lot to go through so so glad that jamie is ned Mm -hmm. so weird that people ask her when she's gonna have a third child i mean seriously two kids is enough kids two kids is enough steph has three she'll tell you i'm just kidding i'm just kidding it is really inappropriate, I feel like, to ask anyone. It's just, you know what? There are lots of other topics mm-hmm. of conversation. Do you know about um, um, the closing of the bones ceremonies? Have you heard of that? No. You seem like the type who would know about this stuff. I, it sounds like something I should know about. Yeah. So I think it's usually done um, like in the postnatal time, but like 
I'm not sure exactly when, um, but it's, it's like closing your fertility. Is it like physical binding of your hips? It's like a ceremony. Oh, because I know I, I didn't do it, but I know people who heal from birth, um, by binding, like it sounds more intense than it is. A lot of times people will break in their, um, their baby wraps like this, where they will bind their hips um, and their lower belly um, with their baby wrap while they're lying in. Hmm. Um, the lying in period is like the period directly after birth where you're just lying in bed with your baby. But um, I know a lot of people who have done that. So I wonder if it's a similar thing. It's definitely a, <laughs> a closing of your of your pelvic bones. Um, is that what it's like? Before I say what it's like, what I was thinking when I brought it up is that it was more for saying this is my last baby and all these women are coming around me to, you know, close the bones and to like do this ritual of being done with um, pregnancy and birth and all of that stuff. And then you move on to this Hmm. next chapter, which is, you know, motherhood or whatever. Um, but as I'm reading about it, I think I'm totally making that up into what I want it to be because it does seem like it's way more related to just being postpartum and healing from birth and cleansing and all of this stuff. And I don't think it's necessarily having much to do with your... Also, are we like advocating for cultural appropriation here? What is... Um, (laughs) Let's not do that. Okay. I'm not saying to do it because I'm saying what I was gonna say no you're the one that said that you shouldn't have three children I already had to tell you not to dress up like a Native American (laughs) for Halloween I was going to reference this to say there should be a ceremony for people who are not gonna have children who whether they want to or not but if they want to have some sort of like thing to go through to kind of have closure about that It just gives some finality to it. Like if there was some sort of thing, like I feel like in our culture, we don't really do stuff like that frequently, but Mm -hmm. that's, this is a very common theme for women is like either like we were talking about, like you've had two kids and suddenly you want more, even though that's not really feasible, maybe for your family or something, but you're sad about it because you kind of want, you know, like, but coming to terms with that, to, ha- to have a decision made, but then something like kind of beautiful happen around that. Like, like yeah. this is you stepping into the next part of your life and leaving that kind of behind. And then also for people who really always have wanted to have a child and have decided not to, or can't to just have some closure to that. I just think that makes sense. And I wish our culture did more things like that. Not necessarily that we should all be doing the like actual closing of the bones ceremony, which I think is Ecuadorian or maybe Mexican. Anyway. I think that it is very normal to want to have the ultimate choice over what your body does. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that it would be nice to have some sort of ceremonial acknowledgement of every milestone. Mm-hmm. Kids are the only ones I feel like in our culture who who get a lot of ceremony. And I'm I think it's kind of a mm-hmm. rip off. Especially if you don't have kids. You don't you don't get that. Yeah. Um unless you get married, I guess. But yeah, we should have some um, like I mean, I'm not going to get onto a whole nother freaking topic because I need to get to these rats, this rats, these rats. I always <laughs> say different, but we need to get there. But I think about like even menopause, right? Like all of these women in our generation will go through menopause naturally in however many years. And wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of like common ceremony where like other women take you in and like celebrate moving through to another thing or I don't know I'm a hippie I'm coming out I'm a hippie (laughs) here is where I let people in on a cool thing that I've been a part of for many many years um which is my full moon circle 
that is absolutely hippie witchy bullshit to a lot of people, but also provides a lot of what we're talking about. Um, and it, in my experience, has been a really lovely way to kind of mark the passage of time. It was very exciting when my daughter started her period and she was invited to the full moon circle and there's not always a lot of like ceremony around it a lot of times it's just like people sitting around a fire on the night of a full moon who haven't seen each other in months or you know like we don't do it super regularly we do it whenever you know people are free and available and there's a backyard open um but it is very nice to have it as something you can attend you can have we you can kind of bring however many spiritual things you want to it some people will charge their crystals in the moonlight some people will burn things they want to get rid of in the fire um we often talk about really personal stuff um and I do think that is a nice way to kind of process these milestones that we don't get to celebrate in a big way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that can look like anything. It can look like a support group. It can look like um, a dinner party that you have every month. It can look like church. It can look like, you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just important that when we have these big things that we're going through, we make time for us ourselves to process them and, and give them enough space. And that can look like whatever you need it to, but just make it look like something. Well, thank you. You goddamn hippie. Um, do you have a rats for us? You know, I do. symposium that I attended in Pittsburgh. It was incredible. It was due to the generosity of LBCA. I did, as I said, get a travel scholarship to attend as a patient advocate. And they did extend that generosity to, I think, 10 people. So not a small investment in patient advocacy for the Lobular Breast Cancer Association. And as I said before, it was a place for researchers, um, clinicians, physicians, for like drug reps and stuff. And it was sponsored by the University of Pittsburgh, UPMC Hillman Cancer Center, UPMC McGee Women's Hospital. And it was basically right there on their campus. And so we got to see Dr. Steffi Osterreich and Dr. Adrian Lee's lab. I did a tour of the lab where they're doing all of this crazy lobular research. We met some of the grad students who were working in the lab. We got to hear about their research. We got to hear about some of the programs that they're working on. One of which was, and like just um, a little bit of a content note here, if you need to dip, this is about um, metastatic breast cancer patients' death. But Maybe this will kind of be the focus because a lot of the cool stuff that happened for me personally really came out of this particular project. But so in Belgium, there's this researcher and physician named Karen Van Bulen. She's um, gorgeous and very cool. So if you're listening, Karen, love you. Uh, Big fan. Um, So she does this program in Belgium for metastatic lobular breast cancer patients where they collect your body after death to harvest your tumors for research. One of the problems with lobular breast cancer um, metastatic sites is that they can often be very, very hard to biopsy. We have these like weird ass metastatic sites like in your brain 
obviously they don't do craniotomies to just do a biopsy. So, you know, these metastatic lesions in your brain don't get biopsied. You've got like your abdominal cavity, you've got your stomach, you've got like the lining on your spine, all of these weird places that they can't really get to. And so what ends up happening with lobular patients is number one, we don't have a lot of info on metastatic lesions. We don't like know the tumor biology of those distant sites. And as a result, you end up kind of going through treatments that don't end up working because you don't know if, for example, your cancer has morphed from hormone receptor positive to not hormone receptor positive, or if your cancer suddenly has become HER2 positive. And so that's a real bummer. And we want to know more about why the cancer changes its biology, Mm -hmm. um, if certain metastatic sites are more prone to changing Mm -hmm. the cancer biology, if... um, People, you know, over a certain amount of time can go back and forth from ER positive to ER negative back Mm -hmm. to ER positive. So all of this stuff is really valuable information that would drive a lot of treatment. But, you know, unfortunately, lobular breast cancer patients are kind of just guinea pigs for whatever works. And if we could cut out those three month periods where we are trying something that ends up failing, uh, that that could do a lot of good for our overall survival Mm -hmm. rate, right? So what happens in this program is the doctor uh, will speak with their metastatic lobular breast cancer patients and say, hey, um, we would really like to use your body to learn more about lobular breast cancer. Um, Obviously, for some people, Uh, organ donation is something that they were really hoping to do, but we can't do organ donation as cancer patients anymore. And so it can feel really meaningful to donate your body to science if, you know, you don't have a religious obligation or cultural obligation to do something else with your body after death. And so in Belgium, because it's a relatively small country, they're able to have people die at home with their hospice. Um, or in a more comfortable hospice center rather than dying in the hospital. And then they come within about an hour and they allow the family to say their last goodbyes. And then they take the body and they harvest every metastatic lesion that they can, along with like primary tumors and everything like that. And all of that goes into this bank where they are able to try to grow and study the cancer and really, really valuable. So there's another program that's um, happening that's very similar at UPMC in Pittsburgh. I was able to speak with one of the grad students, Alex, who's working on that. Um, And then they're also trying to do the program at MD Anderson in Houston. And I talked to the physician who is also piloting that program. And unfortunately, it at UT or at um, MD Anderson, they are not able to allow people to die at home or in a hospice center. They have to die in the hospital, which is really limiting the number of people who want to participate. Yeah, it sucks. Um, And so obviously this is something that could be a boon to lobular breast cancer research, but it has to be done in a way that people actually want to participate. Mm -hmm. Because the way that you die is so personal and so important. And I do think that that hospice piece and being able to die at home is really key. So anyway, I was at this roundtable discussion on the last morning of the symposium. And I was with Dr. Van Bulen and Alex and then this other physician at MD Anderson. And they were so respectful during our conversation, they really wanted to hear from me about how I thought they could loop in patients and even broach mm-hmm. the topic. Because the the doctor that was there um, from MD Anderson, she said that, you know, the problem is that a lot of people might feel like she's giving up on them if she even brings up this topic. If she says, you know, like, there's this program that you know, you could donate your body. It's like, she's, 
she's suddenly shifted into somebody who doesn't believe that they're going to make it. Or, you know, it's just, it's a delicate balance of, of who you can talk to and how you can talk to them. And so, um, they were really curious about my thoughts and that felt so validating. And then just besides that, it was really, really cool to be present to see Dr. Hannah Linden from the University of Washington present some of the data from the study that I participated in on FES PET scans as a predictor for the success of future treatments. Uh, Because again, same deal, it's very difficult to get uh, biopsies from some metastatic lobular sites. And so they use FES PET scans to see if you're tumor biology has changed with the metastatic site. So for example, if you have cancer in your spine that is visible on an FDG PET scan, the glucose kind, and you have an FES PET scan and it's still visible on the FES PET scan, which uses radioactive estradiol, then you know that probably you will still be able to use um, a hormone blocking treatment hmm. that will still be effective for for treating those metastatic sites but if you have lesions in your spine that are visible on FDG pet scans and they're not visible on the FES pet scans then it's possible that your tumor biology has changed so that it's no longer hormone receptor hmm. positive and so that's just a really interesting thing um it was kind of part of a of a three wing study, it seemed like with somebody at the Hogue Medical in USC in Los Angeles. And um, another doctor, Dr. Matthew Covington was doing another part of the study. And it was just really cool. You know, it was really cool to see all of this data presented and be like, look, I'm one of those yeah. dots. Up there. <laughs> I'm, I'm a data point <laughs> on that screen. Um, and I don't know, it was it was great to see, the, you know, this booklet of abstracts that we received as part of the agenda, just to flip through that, to go see all of the posters presented, um, just people working really, really hard to learn more about lobular breast cancer and working on patient care, working on how to diagnose and treat and um people really giving it their all. I was actually sitting at a table kind of like working on podcast stuff one morning and there was a physician at the table too. And she had her laptop and she made a phone call. And I heard this woman on the phone explaining um, that somebody had had a recurrence and she took so much time. She took probably 20 minutes talking about what this meant for their care. She was, a. it turned out that she was a breast surgeon and she spoke with this person's mom. And I was trying not to like, obviously eavesdrop, but obviously I was also really interested in the way that she was communicating. And she took such time and care with this patient. And when she got off the phone, she just put her head in her hands and like took this deep breath. And I waited a little bit and I said, Hey, as a patient, thank you so much for all of the time that you took and how careful you were explaining everything to her. And she was like, man, this patient, English isn't her first language. She's, she is a single mom. She's had her mother come from another country to stay with her and her child. She had to postpone surgery because she didn't have childcare. It's just, she's like, I just feel like I can't, like even my best is not good enough for this patient. And it's so hard. And just, I mean, obviously, I'm not like relishing this woman's struggle, but it was so meaningful to see somebody really, really engaged with their patient and really feeling like, God, this is such a tough situation. And she was the surgeon like she's not even her medical oncologist. You know, Mm -hmm. this is somebody who's not going to necessarily be the the leader in her care. And so I don't know, just back to what I said in the beginning, that there are lots of oncologists out there, lots of surgeons, lots of clinicians who really give a shit, you know, and who are willing to do all of this research and travel to Pittsburgh and present. It was so cool to see some of the younger people who are like our age, who are, you know, our age and younger stand up there 
with their slides and their shaky voice mm. and their, you know, sort of <laughs> sometimes ill-fitting suits <laughs> and just show off all of the work that they've done on this tiny, tiny segment of a rare type of breast cancer. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It was just really rad. So please, people, if you are able to figure out a way to attend one of these professional symposia, I cannot recommend it enough. I love how included the patients were. So it was so clear that you weren't just invited to check off a requirement or to add some charitable cause to the symposium of like doing something nice for a cancer patient. It was like they clearly really wanted your input. They yes. clearly put thought into who was there and different, you know, discussions and ways to connect and share your experience and find out yeah. what's happening. And that's just so cool. Really, really cool. And even down to like the drug reps and and the, it wasn't just drugs, but from like pharmaceutical companies and uh, like durable medical equipment companies and things like that. Those people were even like, oh, you're, because I had the little ribbon that said patient advocate on there. And they were like, oh, where are you from? Like, um, and for a lot of them, I talked about how I live in a rural area of Washington state. And like, we don't actually have that great of a, of a cancer facility mm -hmm. if you're not able to make that drive down to Seattle. Yeah. Um, and they were like, yeah, one of the places was doing the circulating tumor DNA, the liquid biopsy. Mm -hmm. Um, and they were like, yeah, this this would be perfect for people who live in a more rural area who their hospital doesn't have have, you know, the the PET scan capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was another place that was for genetic testing. And they were like, this is covered by insurance. It's a little kit. It works similarly kind of to like 23andMe, but it's obviously much more um, medically relevant. Mm -hmm. But they were like, you know we use these path labs. They're, um, obviously, you know, on the up and up and they were like, this is something that could really be helpful. If your hospital, for example, doesn't have a genetic counselor. Um, if they don't have anybody there to explain to you what it means that you have the ESR one mutation or, mm -hmm. you know, all these things beyond BRCA that are, really super relevant to the drugs that might be available to you. And especially if you're metastatic, like the, the different lines of treatment that really specifically cater to your type of cancer, your very specific type of cancer. So I don't know. It's just, it was really cool. It was, it was great to be included. Um, it was really nice to be respected. I had low expectations and they were just like blown out of the water. Also, Pittsburgh is a really fucking cool city. That's so great. Can yeah. I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. So I absolutely understand why they wanted your input to navigate the complexity of talking to patients about donating their freaking bodies when they die. Mm -hmm. If you ask yeah. too early, you're going to freak the patient out. Like they're going to be yeah. like, so I don't need to buy a coffin, Do, you know, like what yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. are you saying it's happening? And then if you do it too late, it still is like, seems inappropriate where you're like, oh my God, I'm yeah. so much mm -hmm. on my freaking plate right now. And now you want my body I'm dealing, you know, like, but did yeah. you have good advice? I mean, I have a few ideas myself, but I'm curious if anybody at the table had advice or what you said as a patient, like how you would want to be approached or what would feel appropriate. So my advice to them was to establish a good relationship with your patient from mm -hmm. the beginning. And if you cannot do that, make sure somebody on your clinical staff can. So if the oncologist is just like too overburdened with a patient load or just can't, isn't the type to remember people's life stories, like whatever, fine, but make sure one of your nurses does. So they know if like you have a religious preference, what's going on with your family, you know, if you have 
uh, a plan for after you die. If they've been forthright about like, for example, I want to be buried in this beautiful um, natural burial mm-hmm. field that's local to me. Um, when the time gets closer, I definitely, I mean, and maybe now I should bring it up with, with Rachel, but um, I feel like having these conversations with your patients is really important. So, you know, their vibe, you know, like if you have a patient who's like super religious and that would be um, offensive to them to even suggest, I feel like you should know that as somebody who's providing their cancer care. Um, so that was my first bit of advice. My second bit of advice was to just be very straightforward and say, your type of cancer is very challenging to research because we cannot get good biopsies. That tissue is very important for our research. If you would like to be a part of the research after you die, here is this program that you could potentially be a part of. I think that selling it as something that could potentially really change the way that we understand Mm -hmm. the type of cancer that's like killing Mm -hmm. you. I think that people know that they're dying of something, you know, in almost every case. Sometimes people are really in the dark about it. Some people that are in denial, but I feel like that's pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. For everybody else, we know when we're dying and it can be really inspiring and really affirming to have the opportunity to be part of a clinical trial or to be part of a study. And this is one of those opportunities. And so I think if you just present it really straightforwardly, like I said, your cancer is very hard to biopsy. We would love to learn more about it. You could be part of a change. You know, you could be part of a sea change in the way we understand lobular. What do you well, think, Well, I was Amy? just thinking, you know, I'm always a fan of saying out loud why something is complex. Like yes. to just share with them, like... I'm bringing this up now, not for any other reason other than there's not really a better time, you know, but it has nothing to do with where you're at now or your care. It only has to do with the fact that you are a lobular breast cancer patient, for example, or metastatic lobular breast cancer patient, for example. I'm bringing this to every one of my patients. It has nothing to do with your status now. And then say everything you said about how beneficial it is and why it's hard to study. and saying something about how it would be the best outcome will be that we won't need to even use your body because we're going to stay ahead of these treatments. I mean, depending on who you're talking to, of course, you don't want to be blowing smoke up someone's ass, but you know, hopefully as science is getting better and more treatments are available and stuff, this won't even be needed. However, oh, pause me for a moment. What if you sign up for it and then six months later you're hit by a bus, our favorite thing. Um, (laughs) Can they still take your body just to study you because you're dead? You don't have to die of breast cancer. So that was a really interesting thing that was brought up. Um, Somebody else who is at our table who she like used to work for Komen. I don't remember what her job is now, but um, she was not a patient advocate. She was there as a professional, but she wasn't a physician. She had that idea where like, you know, you sign up as an organ donor on your driver's license. So I was like, yeah, maybe like a national registry Mm -hmm. or something. But it is complicated because they do have to, it sounds like, take your body pretty immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, it does seem like there has to be some Mm -hmm. way for you to register yourself as a part of this so that no matter where you kick off, they can still (laughs) use your parts. Is it so hard to have a huge registry? Like I would like to, I'll do it. You know, I would love to, if I die of some other thing in the next five or 10 years, or if I die of cancer, whatever, um, whatever. Um, (laughs) wow. Amy's getting really cool about all this cancer stuff, (laughs) but to be able to actually look inside my body if I haven't had a recurrence to see if I do have dormant cells in here who are just staying dormant and have hung on for 10 years without recurrence, like why did my body 
not have them go up? Or is there really nothing at all in my body? There's no way to know that at this point. Um, But if every single cancer patient had the opportunity to sign in, and then once you get on hospice, if you are going to die of cancer, then they will reach out to you to talk to you and talk to your family about the plans and make sure it's still okay with you, you know, at an appropriate time. Yeah. Like obviously lobular isn't the only cancer like this that presents challenges. Like I'm sure. Yeah. Like a a national registry or something like, like you're describing could be beneficial for a ton of cancers. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I think maybe the problem is that, this would be putting the cart before the horse, I guess, if there aren't these programs already happening for the other cancers. But like, who cares? I mean, like, I feel like you should still be able to say like, I have cancer, like you can use my body how you need to. Like, Or if another study comes up that needs bodies and I fit for it, yes, you can reach out to me. And so then at that point, they'll say, we have a new thing. Hey, look at you. You're still alive. Well, when you do die, there is this new one coming up. Do you want to opt in for that one? You know? Yeah. One interesting thing was that the Alex, the the grad student that was part of the UPMC, part of this whole autopsy cancer lobular situation, he apparently was the one who sees the patients, which I thought was actually a really smart way to do it because you're interacting directly with the researcher. But how does it get brought up that you're suddenly in a meeting with a researcher who wants to talk about wanting your body? Like, it still seems like that's the same. Well, that's what I wonder. I wonder if it could be something like where you, like maybe in a lot of paperwork or something, like you could check like, hey, I'm interested in this. So it's not somebody being like, hey, can I talk to you about when you die? So Or your <laughs> oncologist being like... There's a Peter Marshall here who would like to step in and speak to you about something. <laughs> and you're like, who's Peter Marshall? Right. Yeah. Um, it could be like, I'm interested in um, clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in postmortem clinical trials. And at that point, then you could get contacted by this researcher who then is like not a part of your care team but that guy Alex he was like when I see people when I do this intake I say I hope I never see you again I hope I never come across that's a great thing to say yeah yeah and so I don't know I think that that could be a smart way to do it I hate to opt for the like passive way of communicating but I do think like you know it's a tough thing I don't know that I want my oncologist to be like hey what do you want to do when you die because I do think like no matter how much trust I have in her I would kind of be like well why are you why are you asking yeah we're (laughs) having that conversation now yeah like you think I'm gonna die like of course like how concerned are we about this lymph node (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah and no matter how many times she was like no it's not about your care right now I'd still be like "Mm, is this about my care right now yeah (laughs) so I don't know yeah we'll see I don't know but it's cool it's a cool program like obviously we got to get comfortable with talking about death as metastatic cancer maybe they should make that the theme of the push forward to get more participants is like some marketing thing where it's like push beyond the barrier or something. And then it could be like, the barrier is that we're all afraid to talk to any of you because we don't want you to think these terrible things. So this whole campaign is to just bring it up to all of you and have you know it has nothing to do about your care, has nothing to do about your status. It has, you know, it's just saying that we don't have enough people because of these barriers. It could just be a bunch of like super awkward situations. Like you see somebody with their skirt tucked into their pantyhose. Do you say something? (laughs) (laughs) All right. right. I'm not a marketing person. Uh, Close my bones. Um, Okay. Well, we've talked and talked and talked. Mm, We certainly have. Well, I'm so happy that... Your huge debt was dropped. Wasn't it 8000 Or did you Me pay too. down since it was 8000 
We paid we paid down some because people were very, very generous. Oh, yeah. You got GoFundMe a big push and, in your GoFundMe. And so you got a few thousand dollars. Yeah. So you paid that down from 8000 down to about 6000 Then they forgave it. Yeah. But God, keep in mind, like, I'm not, I mean, we're trying to say goodbye. Just be done. But <laughs> it's such a huge help to have that taken away, but it doesn't erase the impact of three years of playing catch up and chasing things and juggling things. And oh like, God, it's no, not yeah. like you suddenly don't have money problems anymore and you just get to like do whatever the fuck you want. Um, yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, we are definitely still and will always feel the effects of cancer debt. I mean, yeah. yeah and it sucks truth. and it's not fair and I'm pissed. But you can have my body when Should've I been. die. Despite my <laughs> anger. As long as they take the debt. As long too. as they take the debt. Yeah. You guys are paying for it. Um, all right. Well, thanks so much for listening for Cancer Breakfast. Remember when I um, chastised the letter writer asking if she'd left a review while I was speaking to you as well. Have you left a review? Um do it on Apple Podcasts. Do it anywhere you listen. If it'll let you give us a five star, give us a review. It really helps us in the search for the the old pod to pop up. It's true. It's yeah. true. Um. Yeah. Okay. Well, stay chill. Cool. Kit. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. for Breakfast is hosted by Amy Diles and Stephanie Lejeunesse and produced by Nathan McGeehy. Our theme music is written and performed by Vivivir. Find us at cancerforbreakfast.com, Instagram at cancerforbreakfast, and email at cancerforbreakfast at gmail.com. so much for listening. Thanks for listening.